Let's go ahead and pray before you're seated. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this evening. And we thank you, Lord, for your word and uh, just loving our lives, Lord. And Father, we pray that you would just uh, go before us into the service, Lord, that we would just worship you and lift you up, Lord, looking to you for all that we need. Father, we pray that you would just uh, be with, again, the service tonight, Lord. Help us to just glean from your word what you have for us. Father, help us to learn and grow in these areas. And, and Father, we do pray that you just continue to lift up your name. Thank you for washing away our sin, that we can celebrate that, that you are risen from the grave, that you are alive and well. And Father, we thank give you all the praise and all the glory, and we ask it in Jesus' name. So just to kind of start off, we're going to, our uh, text that we started working through uh, two weeks ago, and then we'll move into uh, the rest of that, so we will finish it up tonight. So uh, a couple announcements just to kind of bring, up, bring us up to date on those things. Um, don't forget we have the baby bottle drive, so be sure to grab a baby bottle if you have not done so already. Um, also don't forget we have our missionaries that will be with us uh, next Sunday. Uh, the bombs will be with us, so please don't forget about that. Uh, also want to let you know about Summer Blast coming up, so don't be or be thinking about that and praying about that. Um, all, uh, June 14th through August 23rd. Uh, and then also, uh, just a reminder, next Sunday evening, uh, with it being Memorial Day weekend, we will not have Sunday evening service, um, and then we'll get back to normal on uh, June, I believe June 4th is the first Sunday, um, June 4th or 5th, whatever that first Sunday is, and then uh, we'll pretty much go all the way through till um, Unity or Father's Day, we'll take a break for Father's Day, then we'll go all the way through probably till Unity Fest. And then we'll kind of move on through there. So just be watching the bulletin as far as when we're having Sunday evening services. Usually we take breaks through the summer, depending on holidays, Unity Fest, and all that stuff as well. So be paying attention to that. Um, also, just a reminder, next Monday, with it being Memorial Day, our church offices are closed. And so just a reminder about that. Uh, just also letting you know about All In event, uh, the men's event going on June 24th. Don't forget about that. Um, going to be a great time. $10 is the cost on that. So excited for that and for the Lord to really bless in that and a lot of guys to come on out. Um, also, ladies retreat meeting, uh, that's going on June 4th after service. So there you go. It is June 4th. This is a Sunday. Uh, and again, this is for anyone who is interested in going or has already paid for the ladies event. All right. So just an informational meeting for any and all ladies interested in what's going on with the ladies retreat. And then also just a reminder about the reading program. Uh, the Sword Light Library is doing a summer reading program. And so this is for kids, teens, and adults. And so anyone interested in that can see Avi or just go down to the library and find out more information on that. It's going to be a great time. Um, we're going to run through the whole summer and then there will be prizes and things like that at the end. And then also kind of like a picnic lunch uh, at the end of that as well. So all the information was in the bulletin. So please make sure you kind of note those things. All right. Any questions about any upcoming events or anything else going on? Questions about anything that we can clear up? All right, so John chapter 1, if you have your handout from two Sundays ago, so not last week, but two Sundays ago, uh, we encourage you to pull that out. We're going to be looking at the rest of that passage, and so we started there. We only got through, I think, verse 45 of the passage, so we really covered those first, looks like, what, three verses, um, so pull that out. We do have clipboards up here, pens up here if you need a clipboard or a pen. And if you need a handout, if you were not with us two weeks ago, or you left it at home, or whatever, we can definitely get you one. So who needs one? All right. There you go. Anyone else? Okay. There you go. 
go. You already have one? Okay. Anyone else? Zach, were you here two weeks ago? Do you want one? He's like, no, no, I don't want one. I'm going to give him money anyway, just because I can. There you go, bud. It's just the Bible, Zach. Don't be intimidated by it. Yeah, but you can write on this one. Did you need one, ma'am? I'll leave it here just in case. If you don't, you're good. All right. Anyone else? Oh, got one left. Oh, no, this is good. I got one for him right here. Awesome. No, you're good. All right. So John chapter 1. So as we, uh, and again, I'll review just ever so quickly because of just having some that maybe weren't with us two weeks ago. So some of you may remember back um, probably in the summer, maybe July, August of uh, the summer. No, not the summer. Was it the summer? Yeah. We went through um, some of the Psalms, and then we did some different passages that were kind of like familiar passages and kind of worked through some of them. Um, And so took a break from that for a little while. And then uh, just recently, the Lord kind of laid on my heart to maybe take a few weeks here, um, since we're kind of going to be kind of breaking up Sunday night a little bit. Um, It's kind of hard to do like a series through something. And so we did the... um, the uh, Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity. We did those for quite a few weeks. And so we're going to kind of dive back into some of these types of studies. Um, so that being said, if you have a passage that you have had questions on or you would like to kind of go through like this, um, and I know some of you are like, yeah, let's do this passage. And it's like 46 verses. Uh, that's a little tough to do in this format, okay? Um, ideally, we want them to be probably somewhere between 8 to 12 verses, long. Um, That's really a good amount of verses for context anyway. Um, Really, honestly, my personal thing, I I don't know if I've ever read this anywhere or not, but I like to say about five verses gives you a pretty good context for the most part. As far as if you just take one verse out, if you don't read at least the two before and the two after, you really could make that say whatever you want. So, um, but eight to 12 verses is usually a pretty good passage that gives you fair amount of things to work with in the passage and gives you an idea of what's being talked about there. Um, So we'll be doing that moving forward. So if you have a passage that kind of fits that uh, picture, I'd love to hear that um, at some point, and we can maybe talk about doing something like that. As far as the passages that I'll be choosing or I have chosen, really they're ones that either I personally find really engaging, really interesting, that have great content. Um, Sometimes it's things that maybe uh, you've heard people misuse or, or misinterpret, misapply. So sometimes those passages are kind of easy to come to mind. And so we can break those apart, but we'll be, we'll be looking at some various passages over the coming weeks. Um, and then maybe at some point, once we kind of level out and get normal, uh, Sunday evening service, we might go into a series of some kind moving forward as the Lord leads. So that being said, what we're going to do, if you weren't with us when we did the Psalm study and some other things, uh, we're going to take some time tonight and we just work through the text. So I know we've got some that weren't here, so I'll give you some time tonight. If you were with us two weeks ago and you already did this, uh, just bear with us, okay? And maybe even make more notes if you would like to or read through it. So we're going to take about 10 minutes um, and, and give you time to work through the passage. So what we're doing with that is when you're reading through the verses, you want to make notes of people, places, um, who's talking to who, if it's a conversation, um, interesting things to you that stand out that people may say. Um, if you catch like a, a figure of speech, you might note that. Um, if you catch something of, 
about the person being described. You can note that. Um, also, if you note or see in the passage where another passage of Scripture is being mentioned, um, and I'll give you a kind of a little bit of a, a clue on this um, as an example. In verse 45, it talks about Moses in the law and the prophets. So if you're doing this on your own, and again, this is, you can do this on your own. You can get a, a, a you know, go on your computer or whatever, print off a passage. Uh, I know Sandra prefers to do it on her iPad. I think I was talking to Danielle uh, Bornice, and she likes to do it on his, her iPad as well um, because you've got the little Apple pens you can just write right on there. So whatever it is, you can do this in your own personal studies. And so if you're doing this on your own or even together, and you find that phrase, Moses in the law, and then the prophets, you would mark that. You would circle that and be like, okay, what, what about the law? What about the prophets? What, what's being talked about here? So you would note that in your studies for more study later on. So you're just making a lot of observations, looking at what's in the text. All right. So we'll give you some time to do that because I know we have some people that weren't with us a couple weeks ago. Um, it looks like, I think TJ and I went to the nursery. So if I can get maybe Greg, if you can, I think he said that music that he plays is on there. You might know where it is. Um, we'll have a little bit of music going so it's not too awkwardly quiet. Right when it gets too quiet and then somebody sneezes or, I don't know, makes a noise, you're just kind of like distracted and then there's giggling, okay? Yeah, it's just great, okay? Working with teenagers, I never did anything in complete silence because it would just sooner or later turn into giggling. So I don't know why, it just always, always does. So, so we'll give you about 10 minutes, thereabouts, to go ahead and work through the passage and then we'll come back and review where we were and then pick up with the new stuff moving forward. All right. I think he's found it. Good. Awesome. All right. So go ahead and dive in, guys. And then we'll come back and talk about it in just a minute. If anyone needs a clipboard, let me know. Anyone need a clipboard? After thinking about it, you're like, well, a clipboard would be really helpful. That's two clipboards.
All right. Well, hopefully you guys got pretty far in the text for the newer people that weren't here a couple weeks ago. I know it's a lot to work through. So uh, we will go ahead and just review quickly the couple verses that we already looked at. Um, and then we'll move through to the new stuff. So if I can get uh, maybe a volunteer that would like to read verses 43 through 45. And then we'll talk a little bit about those. And then we'll move into the new stuff. So 43 through 45. If I can get somebody to read that. Anthony, thank you. Okay, thank you, sir. So, here we see, obviously, what's, what's happening in this text. What's, how would you summarize the beginning of this text? What do we see happening here? Yeah, so Jesus is calling Philip. What is he calling him to? Okay, specifically to follow him. We call that discipleship, right? But really what this is is more than just, hey, follow me to learn from me. Follow me to be my student. It's follow me as Messiah. Follow me as Lord and Savior. Like it's a call to a relationship. It's called to discipleship. And so when you see this here, I, I love, and we talked about it, that this was initiated by Christ. This calling was initiated by Christ. And how do we know that? The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and find Philip. So if you didn't, you need to circle, underline, find Philip. That Jesus was the one that pursued Philip. And says unto him, follow me. So underline, follow me. Because you're going to see Jesus, when he was speaking to people and inviting them into discipleship, inviting them into a relationship with himself, we would call it, in a sense, sharing the gospel to some degree, uh, simpler forms of what the gospel is early versus what we understand it to be later in the New Testament. But we always invite people to believe, right? We always say, believe in Jesus, believe in the gospel. Nothing wrong with using that word. That's, that's what we're doing. That's, that's the, the act that we're putting forth is we are believing, we are trusting in the gospel. We're trusting in Jesus, okay? Nothing wrong with the word belief or to believe in. But notice Jesus, when you read the gospels, very often it's not, hey, believe in me, although he does say that. Much more often he says, follow me. Because if we really believe, what will be the result of our belief? Following him. We see that not only in the Gospels, we see that also in the book of James. You have faith, great, but faith without works is dead. What is faith, works producing faith? Followers of Christ. Those that follow Christ believe to the point of producing works. Or rather, maybe we could say it this way, our belief, our faith, our following of Christ allows the Holy Spirit to work and produce those works in our lives. However you want to look at it. But it's important we note that this was initiated by Christ. He went looking for Philip. Um, then you can understand the next couple of verses, how Philip responds. And I love this. And we talked about this too as well. Now, Philip was of, was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. What did we notice about that? We made some comments about that relationship. What do we know about Andrew and Peter? Okay, they're brothers. Where are they at with Jesus? 
Andrew's already started following Christ earlier in John 1. And Andrew told Peter, so they begin following, right? So we can see this dynamic unfolding of those that know Christ will tell others of Christ. And it seems to be, it's you start with those closest to you. You start to those who mean the most to you, right? Andrew found Jesus or began following Jesus as a disciple of John the Baptist, had to go tell Peter. John, the apostle John, son of Zebedee, begins following Jesus with Andrew, both followers of John the Baptist. He goes, tells James, his brother. We see here, Philip comes to Jesus, right? Follows Jesus, and he does what we would naturally do as followers of Christ. I got to go tell Nathaniel. I've got to go tell someone about this. And so again, we don't know that Nathaniel and Philip are related. Uh, there's no evidence of that in scripture. We don't read that. Uh, some have suggested they may be. Most have said they're probably just very good friends. And they all probably, Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, and Nathaniel, probably all know each other. They're all, they're all connected, okay? So here we see this. So he goes and finds Nathaniel. Notice the connection here. Jesus finds Philip, but Philip finds Nathaniel. Jesus is still seeking Nathaniel, Right? Philip goes and finds him physically, but it's Jesus who's really doing the seeking through Philip. But here we see when he has this conversation with uh, Nathaniel, how does Philip describe his conversion? Who found who? Right. So we already established Jesus found Philip. He pursued him. But when Philip tells this story to Nathaniel, he says what? We found Jesus. Another word says, hey, hey, I found the Messiah. You need to come see this. And so we asked the question, well, and we said it this morning as well, who's right? And the answer is they both are. From God's point of view, he pursues us. He initiated love in us. He came to us. But scripture very much says we must call upon the name of the Lord so that we might be saved. We must respond in faith and receive the gift of salvation, right? Whoever believes has eternal life. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. So there is an act of we must respond to the initiation of Christ. And so we describe it as, and people will say this all the time, you know, you'll ask somebody about their faith and they'll say, well, well, I found Christ at 16 or I was saved at this age. I, I found Christ or I was told about Jesus and I, I asked him to be my savior. We kind of look at it from a perception of we did the thing of finding. We were the ones that asked. And that's true. But it's equally true that Jesus pursued you. Jesus was chasing you. Jesus was working in your heart and mind as well. So they're both right. It's just different pers perspectives of the same situation. And I love this because this has been debated in Christianity for a long, long time. And there's good, healthy debate around this topic. And I'm all for debate and biblical conversation and all of that. But some, where, especially where I went to Bible college, would spend way too much time trying to split these theological hairs. And the answer is both the free will of man and the sovereignty of God come together in the gospel in salvation where one line starts and one stops and this and that, and people want to argue these things. I'll be really honest with you. I don't know. <laughs> I know that both are in scripture. I know that he initiates, he redeems us. He's working in us. And we have to respond. So I love this passage because it shows that picture, that dynamic, okay? And when we get to heaven, we'll be like him. We'll know all the answers, okay? And we'll know who was right, ultimately, in what degree, okay? But it's funny. Even when you go back and you study the Reformation, 
this issue, there wasn't even agreement among the reformers about where these lines were. There was a little bit difference of opinion. Martin Luther was kind of on one side. John Calvin was on kind of the other side. But yet, isn't it amazing they both were able to work together for the cause of Christ? They were both able to preach the gospel and lead people to Christ. And so, again, we can have our ideas and our opinions and base them in Scripture, but we must also realize that there are some things we're not going to understand 100%. And we're okay with that because God's Word says both exist. So that's why I love this passage for many other reasons, but that's one of the reasons. So then we see... uh, Philip talks to Nathaniel about Jesus and what does he reference as evidence that he is the Messiah? He goes back to what? Verse 45. Moses and the law and the prophets. He's talking about what was prophesied of the Messiah. So he's saying this person, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. There's no mistaking identity. There's no confusion about who he's talking about. We know he's referring to the same Jesus that we are reading about. And so again, the same Christ. And he references those examples. And I gave you some verses on that for Moses and the law. If you weren't with us, you can jot this down. Deuteronomy. So what I did was right under Moses and the law, I just drew a little line and wrote this under there. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. And then obviously Genesis 3, 15. Right, the first mention of the coming Messiah. For prophets, there's so many places you could write down. But the one that always jumps out to me is Isaiah 53. What a beautiful picture of the coming Messiah. All, Isaiah talks a lot about the Messiah, but that's one chapter as an example of where you, these individuals, Nathaniel and Philip, would be thinking of that passage. Yes. Genesis 3.15. Which is where Moses records the very first mention of one will come, right? Who will crush the head of the serpent. So again, we see this being talking about here. Um, So moving through, we see in verse 46 where we'll pick up with our text. Nathaniel's response to this invitation. Okay, So I know we read it a couple weeks ago. But if I have somebody that, that would be willing to read verses 46 all the way through 51. So we'll read the next part of the text. Then we'll kind of go back and start breaking it apart. So verses 46 through 51. Who'd like to read that for us? Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Okay, thank you, ma'am. So here we see this back and forth. Let's drive right into verse 46, Nathaniel's response. How would you describe Nathaniel's response? Like, how did he take that news when he said, 
when, when Philip says, hey, we found the Messiah. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. How does Nathaniel respond? Yep. So I, I put little, whenever I do this and I, I read a comment like that, I put a little quotations around it because it just draws my eye to know this was a comment that they were making or a statement that he made. Can there be any, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? And so here we see that he is surprised. He's shocked that the Messiah would come from Nazareth of all places. Um, he actually makes a derogatory statement when he says this about, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Also, this tells us that most likely Nathaniel is waiting for the return of the Messiah or the coming of the Messiah, I should say, the, the coming Messiah. He is waiting for it to the point that when Philip said we found the Messiah, Nathaniel didn't say, who? The what? Like, what are you talking about? I'm not waiting for a Messiah. This shows me that Philip and Nathaniel were both waiting for this Messiah to come. There was anticipation and I think about even uh, in the birth account of Jesus when uh, Simon is on the temple steps and Jesus or Mary comes with Joseph and baby Jesus and he's rejoicing and he says, I can now basically die because I've seen the salvation of Israel. And he's been awaiting this moment. And many Jews, followers of God, have been awaiting this moment, have heard story after story, prophecy after prophecy. By the way, it's a, not completely uncommon to what Christians are experiencing today when we've heard Maybe some of you from when your time you were children right now, and as you're older, you've heard, okay, Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. And other people are starting to kind of say like, well, shouldn't he have been here by now? Like, wh where is he? Why isn't he here yet? Imagine these Jews. It's the same kind of thing. Some Jews are anxiously awaiting the coming Messiah. Some have just kind of moved on with their life. They're just kind of living life. If he comes, great, but I'm not really looking forward to it in the sense that I'm awaiting it. And so here we see really this kind of dynamic in the, the passage. Now, interestingly enough, Nathaniel lived in Cana of Galilee. So Nathaniel lives in Cana, and Jesus is coming from Nazareth. Now, both of those are in Galilee, so the same region. So there's Israel, in Israel, there's Galilee, which is a region there. And within Galilee, there's Cana and there's Nazareth. And there was prejudice seemingly in the region where others looked down on Nazareth, even though they're from the same region. Ironically, those who lived in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem looked down on those in Galilee. So it's like if you were from Jerusalem, you kind of looked down on those up north in, in Galilee. And if you lived in Galilee, if you were in Nazareth, you got looked down upon by those in Cana. And what this shows me is human nature at its finest. It's not an American problem. It's not a black-white problem. It's not a male-female problem. It's a sin problem. We will always find someone to look down on. We'll always find some people group somewhere to look down on and have these views towards. And by the way, there's somebody probably looking down on you who thinks they're better than you. This is just the human condition. Again, something of note, all of Jesus' disciples, except for Judas are from Galilee. All of Jesus' disciples originated from Galilee, except for Judas. Because Judas Iscariot is believed to be from a region just outside of Jerusalem. And so all of them are from Galilee, as far as we know. So interestingly, Jesus 
chose people from a region that the rest of Israel, or at least the religious elite in Jerusalem, would look down upon. I love that. And you know why I love that? Because that's fulfilling 1 Corinthians, where it talks about what? He doesn't choose the noble, the great, right? He chooses the ordinary, average people. Now, again, let me say, I always feel like I need to say this. That doesn't mean he can't use somebody with a high education. That doesn't mean he can't use somebody of great importance in the world. Of course he can. The point Paul's making is, you don't have to be elite status to be called and used by God. Ordinary, average people can be used by God. Again, that doesn't mean those who are born into a situation where they are just elite because they are born in that situation can't be used by God. Of course they can. But what does Jesus say in the Gospels? It's the rich that have the temptation to walk away, to not submit, to not follow. Why? Because there's a temptation there to trust in the stuff and not the Savior. So in some regards, it's a blessing to not have all of that to distract us. But here we see, getting back to our text, Nathaniel makes this statement, kind of a prejudice statement. Um, again, just kind of not really believing, looking down on Nazareth, doesn't think much of it. Um, and, and kind of ironically, too, I believe I was reading in one resource that was saying that Nazareth was actually in a better location than Cana. So Nazareth would have been a little more well-traveled than Cana would have been. So I don't know, maybe there was some of that, that maybe they got more commerce than what Cana did. I don't really know. We don't know where the prejudice comes from, but for some reason they looked down on the city. So what's Philip's response to this. Because, I mean, when you think about this, Philip just came to a point of believing that Jesus is the Messiah. He is, he is Jesus of Nazareth. He is the Son of God. We believe this. And he tells his friend, and he's so excited, and he thinks his friend is going to say, that's awesome. Let's go meet him. I want to go meet him. But he makes this comment that could be really discouraging to Philip. It could cause Philip to go, wait a minute, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's not the Messiah. But I love Philip's response. Philip saith unto him, Come and see. Come and see. So what is uh, Philip basically saying? I will let Jesus speak for himself. Like, you just need to come. Like, I'm not going to defend. He doesn't defend Jesus. He doesn't defend the people of Nazareth. He doesn't say anything. He just says, okay, come and see. And I love that he's just going to let Jesus be Jesus. Why? Because he believes in who Jesus is, and he knows Jesus can take care of this. Jesus doesn't need our defending. It's okay to have conversations and to debate people, but Jesus can speak for himself as well. So I love that response. Just come and see. By the way, we get the same response today, don't we? When Jesus doesn't fit somebody's mold of what they think, he's not from where they think he should be from, he doesn't do what they think he should do, and they want to kind of critique and criticize, all we need to do is invite people through the gospel to come and see. Just, just come and see. Don't put all that prejudice aside. Just come and be open before him. Next, we move into Jesus' testimony of Nathaniel. So we see in verse 47. And uh, right off the bat, I would encourage you, if you didn't, uh, it says Jesus saw Nathaniel. Uh, circle the word saw or highlight it or whatever you're doing. Underline it. Because what does that tell us about Jesus' attitude in this moment? It says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him. Yeah, right? This is where, I mean, it's kind of just common sense in a way, right? But he can't see him coming from a distance if he's not standing there looking for him. 
Now again, Jesus is the son of God, God himself, all knowing. He knows Nathaniel's coming. He's not, oh, I'm surprised he's coming. No, he knew before the foundations of the world this was going to happen. But I love the picture that he's looking for him. Right? He's just trusting it. Or Philip's just believing. Let's just go. And he looks up and he sees Jesus looking for them. What comes to your mind? Another passage that maybe comes to mind when you think about this. Yeah, the prodigal son. Right? Luke, is that Luke 15? I believe if I'm getting that right. I might, might be off there, but I think it's Luke 15. Um, so again, you see that picture again. Jesus is displaying what he talks about in the prodigal son. He's saying... The Father's looking for you to come. And Jesus is modeling that. Jesus isn't off somewhere hard to find. No, he's right, right out in the open. Hey, I'm here. I'm just wanting you to come. So he sees him coming. I absolutely love that. Okay? So he says, he saw him coming to him and saith of him. Now, who's he saying this to? He says it of Nathaniel. But he's saying it to all of those that are gathered around. Whatever other disciples, not just the 12 that end up being called, but other followers who are beginning to gather around Christ. So he's saying it as a public testimony. I don't know if you've ever read it this way, but he's not saying it just to Nathaniel. But he says it, and the Bible says he says it of Nathaniel to whoever can hear it. He's giving a public testimony. This, this part of the passage reminds me when he talks about John the Baptist. When John the Baptist is imprisoned and, and killed, beheaded. And Jesus gives this beautiful eulogy of John the Baptist to any who would hear. So again, he's giving this public testimony. And what is the testimony that he gives of Nathaniel? You can put quotations around it if you want. But what is the, what is the testimony? Behold an Israelite. What's that word? Indeed, in whom is no guile. What is guile? Deceit. So a couple things you want to highlight here. Israelite, okay, uh, I'm sorry, Israelite indeed, that phrase, and then no guile or no deceit. Again, remember, Nathaniel's view of Jesus, not really of Jesus, he doesn't know Jesus. What is his shock? From Nazareth, really? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Notice he's not really attacking Jesus, the person, He's speaking to a cultural perception. A comparison might be, think of a city that you don't think very highly of, or an area that you don't think very highly of, that you think, man, nothing but trouble and problems come out of that area. There's nothing good that comes out of that area. And then imagine someone telling you, that's where the Messiah is coming from. And you would go, really, from there? Like that area? There's no way. So again, it's not so much he's attacking Jesus, the person. He's more surprised at what he's been led to believe about this area of Nazareth. So first of all, that testimony that Jesus gives to him, and Sandra asked me a question. She wasn't trying to get answers to the notes, by the way. I don't know if you guys saw me whispering her a little bit. She wasn't trying to get answers to the notes. But because um, I tell her, I'm like, I ain't telling you nothing. You got to do the work just like everyone else. Um, no, she, uh, she said, she kind of said, it's kind of like, was Jesus being sarcastic here? You know, because Jesus knows all things. And so Nathaniel says this of Jesus. And when he shows up, when Jesus says, hey, behold, an Israelite indeed, with whom is no guile, or in whom is no guile, was he kind of being snarky or sarcastic? 
And some maybe have come to that conclusion. I don't think that's what Jesus was doing. Number one, because it doesn't really bring about a resolution that glorifies God or leads Nathaniel to Christ. I think what he was doing was he was basically implementing the principles of wisdom in Proverbs. That somebody says something derogatory, and I'm going to return a word of kindness. I'm going to return a testimony of kindness and, and positive, and, and I'm going to speak words of honey, if you will, right? Honey on my lips. Why? Because I'm not going to get into a debate about Nazareth and Canaan, who's better and who's worse, because that's not the conversation. The conversation is, you need Jesus. You need to know me as a Savior. So again, he doesn't even acknowledge that. He doesn't hold it against him, by the way. He knows he said it, but he doesn't hold it against him. But in return, he actually gives a positive testimony. Now, that phrase, Israelite indeed, I don't know if anybody that maybe was here a couple weeks ago looked it up, um, a different way of saying that. Did anyone come across a different either translation that maybe worded that differently or a different way of saying that in your studies? Just throw it out there real quick. Yeah, so you can write down um, Romans 2. 28 through 29. This is kind of where Paul's talking about being a Israelite or a Jew indeed. Okay, this means inside and out. You could say the word genuine. He's a genuine Israelite, right? When we think somebody is genuine, we, we think they're through and through what we see. Like they, they're not hypocritical. They don't say one thing and do another. They're true and, and through and through. They're just Indeed, in genuineness, they are who they are. And that's what Jesus was saying. You can also write down John chapter 8, verse 31. Another reference here to that same word or phrase, that word indeed. And so the idea here is that he was an Israelite on the inside and the outs. The phrase no guile is no deceit. And basically he was an honest man. So he's an honest man who is through and through truly an Israelite, a follower of God. Okay? Yes? Yes. Yep. Right. Yeah, oh, or it, it even changes your perception of not even him, but where he's coming from. If you just heard of this guy and he's from this area, you start, we start making assumptions about the person because he's from that area. But when he treats us in a kind way, we go, oh, maybe I've heard wrong. Maybe my assumptions aren't right. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm really, really, I have a bad issue with, not as much anymore as I used to, but I, I have a bad thing with first impressions, like if somebody makes a negative first impression with me, it's, uh, I fight it all the time. It's just something in me. I really struggle with letting that go. So if somebody's really like, like rude or, or snotty to me the first time I meet them, the next time I see them, in my mind, it's like, yeah, I, I really don't want to be friends with you because you were kind of a jerk to me the last time we talked. And how ridiculously unfair is that? That person could have been having a horrible day, a bad situation, said something I mistook, I misunderstood. And so again, sometimes we have to even realize our own human nature is working against us in these things. Uh, also something to note, this Nathaniel sounds a lot different than the Pharisees, right? 
are the Pharisees that we read about, the ones that were against Jesus, calling for his crucifixion, challenging him at every point, trying to trick him and trap him, were they Israelites indeed, through and through? No. I think Nicodemus was a Pharisee that was indeed follower of God through and through. But most of the Pharisees, what did Jesus accuse them of? Being whitewashed tombs, right? Sepulchers. You look like you're alive, but you're dead on the inside. So again, he's, he's comparing Nathaniel to these other Pharisee, non-real followers of God. And so he's comparing the two. So he's giving him a very big compliment. Um, also, we see here possibly a connection to Jacob. Now, this is not dogmatic, but some have suggested this. Um, because what was Jacob, as far as the Old Testament patriarch, what was Jacob known for? Deceiver, trickery, right? Always trying to trick and deceive his way to get whatever he wants. So some have said, and we'll get to it in a minute, because of how the passage ends in verse 51, there could be actually Jesus speaking to Jacob, connecting, obviously, the line of Israel all the way back to the Old Testament. So again, very good, positive compliments. Now, um, verse 48 and 49, we need to move quickly. Uh, Nathaniel's realization. Okay, so he makes this comment. 48 and 49, Nathaniel makes an amazing realization. Nathaniel says unto him, Whence knowest thou me? So he's saying, How do you really know me? Because you're talking like you know me. How do you know I'm not deceitful? How do you know I'm an Israelite indeed? We've never met, we've never had a conversation. So Jesus says, Before that Philip called thee, so he's making a point in time, before that, when you were under the fig tree, I saw thee. Uh, Again, this could be referring to, um, some people think culturally that uh, in a lot of Jewish homes, they would, uh, smaller homes, and usually would get pretty hot. And so they would have an area outside, a shaded area, where they would do their reading, their studying, their praying. Some people have made different assumptions on this as to far as what he may have been doing out there. But somehow, that moment under the fig tree, which was most likely a shaded place where he went for time with God, maybe a time of prayer, Jesus is saying, hey, when you were under that tree, I saw you. I also wonder, and again, we don't know, so people have made all kinds of assumptions. In my mind, this is what I think. What if he was sitting under that fig tree praying, God, you know, one day it'd be so cool to see the Messiah. Like how amazing it would be to actually see the Messiah, to know the Messiah before I die. Like Simon on the temple steps, Lord, would you you grant me that grace that I could... I could see the Messiah before I die and, and leave this world. I mean, what if that was his prayer request? And then he's talking to Jesus, and Jesus says, hey, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And right in that moment, what happens? He immediately believes. He says this in verse 49. Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. So you want to circle those names. Rabbi, what's another word for Rabbi teacher. Some would also say master, right? There's a level of authority. So teacher, master, you are the son of God. Pretty clear, definitive title there. And then also he says, you are the king of Israel. This would be the Messiah or anointed one. The Messiah or anointed one. So just Jesus saying, I saw you under the fig tree. Nathaniel instantly recognizes you are my rabbi, you are my teacher, my master, you are the son of God, and you are the Messiah, the anointed one. 
And I love his willingness to just speak that faith and to say, I just believe. So what do we see here? Nathaniel exhibited simple faith. Simple faith. He's believing and trusting based on not a whole lot, at least not to our eyes. And that's why I wonder, what was he praying? What was he learning? What was he experiencing under the fig tree with his walk with God? That Jesus saying that, it's kind of like when he said to the woman, right, at the well. And in fact, you've had four husbands, or you've had been with four and they're not your husband, right? And that moment of realization for her to go, how do you know that about me? And again, it began that beautiful conversation that led to her understanding that he was the prophet that would come prophesied by Moses. Verse 50, we see Jesus rewarding Nathanael's faith with a promise that he will see greater things than this. Jesus answered and said unto him, because I said unto thee, I saw you under the fig tree, believest thou? Now that's not Jesus being surprised. It sounds like Jesus is like, really? That's all it took? I thought I'd have to do more. That's not really what's happening here. He's pointing out to everyone else. Remember, this is not a private conversation. Other people are listening. And he's saying, all you needed was that? Again, compare that to the Pharisees. What did they constantly ask for? Give us signs. Perform. Do wonders. Keep doing that. And then Jesus finally says what? Yeah, you're not going to get any more signs except for the sign of Jonah. That, that's your sign. We're done. And so again, here, he moves on to that says, thou shalt see greater things than these. Now, verse 51. If you look this up in a commentary, if you study about this, there's some different opinions. Um, I think one commentary actually just skipped it altogether, didn't even address it. Um, I love when commentaries do that because that means they don't know what it means, which always makes you feel encouraging when you're like, I don't get this. And then you go to a commentary and you're like, hey, he didn't get it either. I'm in pretty good company. All right, I'm okay with that. But there's some things here that we could assume is being spoken of here. So verse 51, he saith unto him, verily, verily, I say unto you. And we always want to underline verily, verily. Okay, whenever you see that in a text, it basically just means like pay attention. This is a truth statement I'm going to make. This is something you need to hear. Okay, listen to what I'm saying because um, this is true. I say unto you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the sun of man. Now, we should note son of man because we see different titles here for the Messiah. King of Israel, son of God, rabbi, son of man. All refer to Jesus. All are being given to Jesus. Son of man is actually a title of divinity, meaning the Messiah. Son of God is obviously referenced as a title of divinity. And we'll give you just a little bit more about son of man in just a moment here. But what is this scene and you read it, it kind of sounds pretty crazy. If you read it through, you're like, that sounds a little weird. And I, you're, I started thinking through, okay, is there a moment in the Gospels where Nathaniel sees this, where it tells us he saw angels ascending and descending? And it's not recorded for us. We don't see this. So then the question is, okay, well, if I can't read Scripture on when it happened, we know Jesus says it's going to happen after this at some point, what's being spoken of here? Well, here's the best kind of solution most people have kind of agreed upon. So what Jesus may be speaking about here with angels ascending and descending, many believe that Jesus is referring to Jacob's ladder in Genesis 28, which connects potentially with the earlier reference to someone with no deceit, again, contrasting with Jacob. So Jacob's transition went from a man that was known for deceit and treachery. His name was changed to Israel, and then he was used by God to do great things. 
So here we see it could be a connection to that, that basically Jesus is fulfilling the foreshadowing of that ladder by placing himself, the son of man, as the ladder or the link between God and man. So what Jesus could be doing here is basically saying, I'm the fulfillment of Jacob's ladder, that no longer do you need some other link between God and man. I'm the link. I'm the connection between God and man. Hence using the title son of man to show that connection to the Messiah. If you want to note it or jot it down off to the side somewhere, son of man is used 83 times in the gospels. So 83 times in the gospels, 13 times it is used in the gospel of John. So 83 times that title is given to Christ in the Gospels or about Christ, 13 times in John. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, which again, it's interesting when, when, when I remember when I was first saved, I used to think son of man. I always, think it, I always took it as the mean just to the humanity of Christ, kind of comparing the son of God, son of man, God, man. But actually, son of man has a heavier weight of the divinity of Christ than it does really the humanity of Christ, as, as I naturally would think of it that way. Uh, so again, interesting here that Jesus is basically some, er, you know, putting himself in that position to be the one that is the connection between God and man. So quickly, as we're out of time, what happened to these two disciples? So these are, this is the calling of Philip and Nathaniel, uh, two disciples that we don't know a whole lot about. Again, remember, beyond the first four or five disciples, uh, James, John, Peter, Andrew, uh, we don't really know a lot about these other individuals. We know bits and pieces. But church history does tell us a little bit. Tradition tells us a little bit as well. So tradition tells us that Philip was used greatly of God, preaching in Asia Minor and having a fruitful ministry. Tradition also says that he was martyred approximately eight years after James which we read James's martyrdom in Acts chapter 12. So tradition says he was martyred somewhere about eight years after James. Uh, that means most likely he was very fruitful in his ministry uh, because early on they wanted to get rid of the Christians that were doing the most. This is why when James is martyred, the Bible says that the people rejoiced. They were excited about that. They were happy with that as far as the Jews and those that opposed Christianity. Tradition says that Nathaniel ministered in Persia and potentially India. Again, do you see the gospel already spreading out, right? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. What's amazing is if you really study church history, you'll find out the gospel has gone so many places that now don't seem to have the gospel, but they once did. Um, Again, which is interesting to think about. His death is unsure. Some traditions say that he was tied in a sack and thrown overboard at sea. That would be a pretty rough way to go. Um, Other traditions say that he was merely crucified. Again, not ideal, but martyred in some way, as all of the disciples, as far as we know, based on history, scripture, or traditions, they were all martyred in one way or another, except for John, uh, who was uh, isolated or um, exiled. Uh, It is Christ that calls us into service. It is Christ that equips us to serve, and Christ that receives all the glory as we follow him, desiring to be his disciples indeed. And so that's the connection to John 8.31, that we are called to be disciples indeed, through and through followers of Christ. So I want to encourage you with this. This is an amazing passage that shows, number one, that Jesus can use anyone. 
even those of us that have negative views of other people, other situations, or prejudices. But it also shows that when we put simple faith in Christ, we are rewarded to be able to see even greater things. And I think that's what, what God wants to do in our life, is he wants us to put our simple faith in him, and then from that, he grows our faith, and we see greater and greater things for his glory. All right? So I pray this is an encouragement to you. Um, we will just go ahead and pray. I know it's already 10 after 7, so I appreciate your patience on that. But let's go ahead and pray and uh, let you guys be dismissed, and the teens can be dismissed to their event as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this evening. Lord, we thank you for this passage that reminds us that you are the one that initiates. You are the one that pursues us. You came to seek and to save that which was lost. We only love you because you first loved us. We know those things are key. We know those things are true. That I would never, of my own accord in my sin, ever pursue you, ever look for you. I needed you to come to me. I needed you to chase after me. I needed you to pursue me. Holy Spirit, we needed you to convict us of our sin. We needed you to draw us unto repentance. But I'm so thankful, honestly, Lord, that, that we have a hand in serving you. That when we are saved, that we can choose to submit our lives to you and submit our words to you and our actions and our daily schedules. And then you use those things for your glory and our blessing. So thank you for using imperfect, flawed, limited human beings like us for your glory. Lord, we all have something. In this example, we see here that Nathaniel had an issue with prejudice. And yet, you called him and used him right where he was. He didn't have to go get that fixed. He didn't have to get that taken care of and, and make himself better. He merely just believed. And from that belief, you shaped and formed him into the image of Christ. And through that, our attitudes are changed. Our desires are changed. Our words, our actions are changed. We think differently. Not because we did it, but because you're doing it in us. And so, Father, thank you again for calling us, for saving us, and for calling us into discipleship to be used by you. Father, let this be an encouragement to us. And thank you for being that link, that much-needed mediator between God and man, that we can trust in you and that you are our defense, our advocate with the Father. And so, Father, again, we pray that you would be with the students tonight as they have their activity, help them have a great time of fellowship, bless the food to their bodies, and just help them have a great time tonight. And Father, again, be with us as we go our separate ways. Help us to be used of you this week in a mighty way. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.